Let's get into it. We're going to pick up where we left off last week as we've been in this series, Equipped. It's, are you equipped for the things that are in front of you? That's what we're looking at. As born-again believers, where should our equipping come from? It comes from Scripture. You see, the Bible in and of itself is the foundation upon every belief that we have. Now, we are not loosely believing this. As we've been teaching, we taught on Wednesday nights, which we're done with uh, Bible study on Wednesday nights through the summer. But as we were teaching, it's like, how do we know this thing is true? Because we stake a lot of confidence in this book. And as you begin to break this down and understand what it is and what it is not, you begin to see how the realization of the world around us is encompassed inside of this. Everything about this uh, is, is laid out very precisely, ultimately by the Holy Spirit. Knowing that this is not a book, but a collection of writings. 66 individual books, 40 authors, over a 1,500 year span, over three continents. Most of the people never met one another, and yet it's very precise. It wasn't just put together abstractly, it was put together by somebody who was outside of our space and time domain, if you will, because they could see the beginning from the end. Guess what? You and I can't. You and I are, have a cause and effect relationship. That whatever decision that we make today will have an effect on tomorrow. Alright? Let me give you an example. You guys ever gone to Golden Corral? Oh yeah, right? It's wonderful. I love Golden Corral. My wife hates it. You know what I like about Golden Corral? There's a couple of different things. One of which is I don't have to argue with what do the five of us want to eat? There's something for everybody. If my nine-year-old wants to stick his head in the chocolate fountain, I don't care. I went to Golden Corral the other day, as a matter of fact, and what's funny is, you know, right now they're serving you the food, you know, because you can't touch anything or whatever, and, and I'm laughing because I'm thinking, listen, if you're taking your life in your hands enough to go to Golden Corral in the first place, then you have no fear, all right? One of the other things that I like about Golden Corral is I'm typically one of the thinnest people there, and I love that. So, you know, it's good. But here's the thing. If you ate there every day, you make the decision, man, I'm getting nine steaks and all of that, there is going to be a result that comes from that, and a, a cause and effect. What's the effect? New pants. Bigger ones, Right? Every decision we make, we have a cause and effect relationship, but God sees the beginning from the end. He knows that the actions taken today will affect tomorrow. He's laid all this out for us. Now, here's the thing. Has he or has he not given us everything that we need to successfully walk out the Christian life? And I'm going to define that in a minute. It's either a yes or a no. It's not a maybe. You either accept it as it is or you reject it entirely. Because if you accept a portion of it, then you have rejected God's word. He doesn't say you get to pick and choose. Now, what does a successful Christian life look like? I'm here to tell you, and this is contrary to popular opinion right now, it is not that you can have your best life now. It is not that you can walk on this earth and have the big house and the nice cars and all that other stuff that goes along with it. It's not so that everybody loves and adores you. That's the Americanized version of that. The successful Christian life is, I am here as Christ's ambassador to do His work on this earth. I have now accepted the position of being God's hands and feet. I go, I preach, I lay hands upon, I'm doing the work that he did while he was here. If you read through Ephesians 2, and we will get there eventually, not today, but in, in, in the weeks to come, you will see that he is the head and we are the body. That head seated on the throne, his body, he's not decapitated, we're still connected, we still have a purpose. 
So, the question comes down to, has He given us what we need to live out successfully in this life? Everybody will say yes. Question two is, what are you doing to prove that? Because you come near to Him with your lips, but your heart is far from Him. And I'm not condemning anybody in this church at all. Don't misunderstand me. When I say you, when I say the church, all of that, I'm talking big picture, like big paintbrush. But the truth of the matter is, is that our church, big C, is very ill-equipped for the world around us. We get caught up in the minutiae of the day-to-day, and we don't even recognize it. So let's look at the term equipped. What does that mean? It's to supply with the necessary items for a particular purpose. Great. That's the definition. What does that mean? Well, what is our purpose? Is to know God and make Him known. Right? You walk in the, uh, uh, the, the front door there, you see a sign that says, Grace Church, loving God, loving people. Well, but there's not a church that would disagree with that statement, right? We all do that. The question is, is how do we do that? Because loving people doesn't mean embracing their sin. And loving people doesn't mean leaving them where they are. Churches today are way more concerned with how full the parking lot is than the hearts of the individual that are out in the parking lot. That's the problem. A problem. I shouldn't say the problem. There's a lot of problems. So then we come down to 2 Timothy. We've been in this. We're going to read it every week. 2 Timothy 3. It says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Okay, great. Why? That the man of God, that's you and I, may be complete, that means with everything, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Who determines what's good? It's not you and I. It's not talking about feeding the poor. Those are good works, great. And you can do that. Perhaps you have the finances, you can go out and fund uh, ministries or fund works or fund different things. That's, that's fantastic. Glory to God for all of that. But what are we talking about here? We need to be thoroughly equipped. And how do we get that? From Scripture. That's why it was given. You see, God has done what we would consider painstaking processes. If you understand the history of the Bible and the attacks that have been on it from the very beginning, then you would understand how much people went through to get their hands on this. The sacrifices that were made. We just got through Memorial Day. And what is Memorial Day? It's barbecue day. It's golf tournament day. It's all of these things. But when you look back at what it was, what are we remembering? We get to do those things as a result of the lives that were sacrificed. But we forget that. I mean, do they teach that to the kids today? I doubt it. They might pass over it, but they get to the point, it's three-day weekend, baby. Let's do this. The thing is, is with Scripture, that people's lives were sacrificed in the protecting of this and the putting this thing together. Lives are sacrificed today because they believe this and they act as if it's true. What about here in America? Are your, is your life on the line by believing this? Not yet. Will you lose friends over it? You might. You might have less followers on Twitter. But we are not under persecution as a result of our beliefs yet. Certainly, we have people that dislike us and will come against us, but let me tell you something, that ain't nothing. You see, we've got to understand what the Scripture is and why it's here. So crucial. We've got to get that. So now let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. We read this as well. 
We've been talking about the armor of God. So he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age and the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, as I told you, we're strong in what? Not you. Not your memorization of Scripture. Not how long you've been doing this. Not the trials that you've been through. It is strong in the Lord. Which means what? You have to trust what He has told you. We're strong in the Lord and the power of His might to put on in yo. To fully encompass the whole armor of God. Not a part. All of it. As I told you, we'll talk about this more. Every piece is crucial. Interlocking. Okay? You have to have every part or it does not work. We have to know that because we need to stand against what? The wiles of the devil, the methodos, the ways that he attacks. You've got to understand, as I've told you, the battlefield is in the mind. That is the way that he goes. You read this out in the Greek, you see that. Who are we wrestling against? Not those on Facebook. Not those who disagree with you. Not those who mock you for your beliefs. Not those who come against you for the stand you take for the truth of the gospel. We don't battle with them. We battle with the spiritual host of wickedness all around us so therefore we take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand stand therefore having girded your waist with truth put on the breastplate of righteousness shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking the shield of faith with which you able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints now as I've gone through this we've started with the the belt of truth, the loin belt, knowing this most crucial piece of that armor, most unglamorous piece on there, you don't think much of it, but without that, every piece of armor is on but loose. It locks in everything. We're going to talk about the shield of faith today. You need to understand that without that belt, the shield would render ineffective in a short amount of time. You'll see why here in a minute. But it would uh, hold everything together because without truth, then our opinion of what Scripture says is nothing more than our opinion. It's not grounded in anything. Your opinion or your interpretation of the Bible is irrelevant. That's why we talk about Scripture interpreting Scripture. Where do we get our beliefs? In fact, uh, Jared brought up something this morning talking about Isaiah 53. Some scholars say Isaiah 53 could be talking about the nation of Israel, not necessarily Jesus. I've told you before that the reason or part of the reason was the Pharisees rejected Jesus is they weren't waiting on a suffering servant. They were waiting on a reigning king. They thought two messiahs might, or one messiah might come twice. Or excuse me, no, I said that backward. Two messiahs coming one time. And they had adopted the belief that the nation of Israel was the suffering servant because of the persecution. So here is some scholars believe, here's the problem. The New Testament, which is a commentary on the prophecies of old, tells us that Jesus was that suffering servant. It interprets it for us. How do we come to that conclusion? Scripture interpreted Scripture. So it doesn't matter that some scholars say. What matters is what does God say? It's all that matters. 
So we have to get our opinions aside. We have to take off the lenses of our denominational upbringing or whatever the case may be and read Scripture for what it is. Because if you don't, you will end up tossed to and fro. That is truth. I've talked about objective and subjective truth. Your opinion is subjective, but if it is grounded in reality, the facts, then it is objective. Who is objective? God is. Here is a standard that He has set. We follow that standard. So it's not your and my opinion. We talked about the breastplate of righteousness, how it locks in to that belt. Is it true that a born-again believer is as righteous as they're ever going to be? Absolutely. So why would you allow the enemy to tell you any different? Good question. Because we truly haven't accepted as truth. So, and then, of course, the uh, helmet of salvation we'll get to and all this other stuff, but the, the shotting of the feet. Last week, that's not what we think. They're not running around in these, these cute little sandals and all that kind of stuff. Like this was a serious weapon, both offensive and defensive. The greaves that covered uh, the legs that would lock into the, the metal part that was on top of the feet, which had those sandal-type things tied into them that were covered in spikes. You could hear them marching down the road. Anything that got in their way was trampled upon. Nothing would stop them from fulfilling the mission. They, they, man, those spikes were good. They're hand-to-hand combat. They're going against one another. You think their footing was good? Absolutely. That's why football players wear cleats. Helps lock it in. Because if one has cleats and one doesn't, the one with them is going to push the other one around. There can be a size difference. So there was a powerful message that Paul was getting to us here. But now we come to this. The shield of faith. Understanding what it is. Now look at this armor as a whole. You see all of this laid out here. But that shield, we often don't think much of it. We, we, the problem is today, it's no different than the story of Noah. All right, let me give you an example of that. When you walk into a church nursery, they've got this cute little bow with a bunch of smiling animals, and they're all out there, and just, everybody's happy. We're going for a boat ride. It's going to be fun. Where are all the people like, drowning and screaming for mercy and all of that that would be more accurate but that's what we do well we take angels and we're like cherubim what are they fat little baby angels with cute wings and halos that's not what it is the same thing with the armor we get images such as this but we never think about well what is he telling us here where is this coming from we got to go back into the context of what paul was sitting in and this shield has a more accurate representation than most of them But why was it important? The number one thing that you have to understand is that shield would lock into that belt. Now, I told you, we always think that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and it is, but I also told you that the truth, the belt of truth, too, is the Word of God. The shield of which protected you would lock into that belt. The reason being, as you'll see in a moment, that sucker was heavy. It kept it so you couldn't lose your balance and open yourself up it would lock into that truth and again our righteousness our protection our faith is locked in to truth your faith is attached to the word of god if you fail to give the word top priority in your life it is a matter of time before you will move that shield out of the way and open up to the attack of the enemy all right faith and the word of god are absolutely inseparable. 
It is not your opinion of what the Word says. God will never give you more than you can handle. That is your opinion. Believe me, you've met my children. He's given me way more than I am qualified to handle. So let's jump into this. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. We love this verse. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Oh, we love that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. And we just go on and on and we say like, oh, well, they, just, they just need to hear the word more. How many people have you ever met in your life that have heard the word ad nauseum and still have not accepted it as truth? How many people have you met in your life that have spent the majority of their life sitting in a chair, a pew, or whatever, hearing the word of God but have never accepted it as truth? So, our reality around us of what we see doesn't match up with this verse, right? That means one of two things. Either the verse is wrong, or our perception of the verse is wrong. Fair enough? Stay with me, I promise. I'm not, because the verse isn't wrong, all right? So, in case you were wondering. So, let's look at the context. Let's go back to verse 1 in Romans chapter 10. You've got to understand what's happening here. You see, the book of Romans is basically a commentary to the church of how to live out the Christian life. And Paul, when he's writing this in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, is specifically talking about the nation of Israel. Israel's past in chapter 9, Israel's present in chapter 10, and Israel's future in chapter 11. Because if you didn't know, the nation of Israel is still God's chosen people. Now they are not in the covenant that was set up for them because they rejected it. But there is a time coming that they will enter into the new covenant that you and I are now a part of. Now, so what I'm trying to tell you is God has not finished with the nation. And that is what Paul is arguing for. So knowing that, Paul in chapter 10 is talking about the very present place that Israel is at as he's writing this. Let's look at this. Brethren, who is a brethren? He's talking to born-again Jews. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Let me tell you something. This isn't spiritual Israel. This is specifically the nation. What is his prayer? Israel may be saved. Okay? Keep that in mind. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now let's break that down because there is a lot packed into this. Here's the problem with us today. We read through this stuff way too quickly. We glaze over it. We're like, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. Who is Paul's concern here? Israel. They have rejected their Messiah. His harsh desire and prayer to God is that His people may be saved. Because He bore them witness. They have a zeal for God. A passion for God, if you will. But what's it based in? Not knowledge. They're ignorant of God's righteousness because they're seeking to establish their own. In what way? Well, They've not submitted to the righteousness of God because Christ put an end to the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, what is that word believes? That word believe is faith. See, faith is not like, oh, I just don't have an answer, so therefore I just trust God, that's it. No, it is grounded in truth. 
if you went through the Bible as a detective trying to see whether it's true or not true, the more you dig into it, the more truth you will find. Truth doesn't change. Truth has always been. The truth of God has always been there. That's why Romans 1 says they are without uh, repentance because the truth of God has been around them all the time. So we see here that Christ being the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes, but yet the nation of Israel is still trying to do what at this point? They're trying to earn their way with God. If I do these things, then God is pleased. Why are they doing that? Because the Mosaic Covenant mandated that. I will be your God, you will be my people. You keep my commandments, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. Do you accept these terms, Israel? Yes, we do. Sacrifice was made. It is now ratified. They broke it immediately. And you see, like in the book of Judges, that big circle that goes around and around and around. They were close to God. They got away from God. They repent. God raised up a judge, a deliverer, sets them free, rinse and repeat. They did it time and time again. Here's the same thing. The, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why is that? Because the Mosaic Covenant, as it was, is no longer in place. How do we know that? Because the high priest was transferred from John over to Jesus, but he did not meet the criteria of a Mosaic high priest. He was not of the line of Aaron. We said he's after the order of Melchizedek where his genealogy didn't matter. It was the one chosen by God. He is the great high priest. Now, as you get into this, you begin to understand this. Okay, what's happening here? You see, what happened is God shifted on how one becomes righteous. It was no longer a keeping of the law. Even then, it required faith because if you were going to keep the Sabbath and not work, it took an element of trusting God's provision. Think about the Israelites and the manna and all of that. They had to collect twice before the Sabbath. But what they saw is if you did it any other day, it would rot. It would be of no good. So they had to trust God that he was going to keep his word. Did they do it? Sometimes. Sometimes not, just like us. So now that that is gone, their faith must be in Christ because the sacrifices are over. Are they still practicing them at this point? Sure they are, because the destruction of the temple had not taken place yet. So they're still trying to do these things, but yet here it was in front of them that Christ came, that he died, that he rose, and he was the ultimate sacrifice for them. They rejected that. It wasn't that they didn't know. It wasn't like they were just blinded. They chose not to believe because of the Pharisees. Now let's go on, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Now let's pause for a minute. There's very powerful words that were just spoken right here in verse 5. Who wrote about the righteousness that we're talking about? Moses did. So Paul knew, this is out of Deuteronomy, who wrote that? It was Moses. This is powerful. Righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. So he's making a distinction, right? Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now stop. What were they saying? By keeping the law, they're determining, okay, I kept the law, therefore I'm in. Or they didn't keep the law, therefore they're out. 
You guys see that? He's making a distinction between the belief that was held and the belief that was true. But what does it say? This is not a New Testament quote. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of belief that we preach. The confession is confessing the truth of what you believe. Watch what it says, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, we love that part, right? So we love verse 17, we love verse 9 and 10. Boy, those are good ones. We skip all the other ones. What's he talking about? Has anybody ever confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord? Happens all the time. Every Sunday, right? Bow your head. Close your eyes, raise your hand. we got to practice for it. Let's do these things. But there's a part in there, believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead. Why is that so crucial? Because you can say whatever you want. It's the accepting it as truth. The raising of Jesus from the dead, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is the cornerstone of our faith. Without it, we are lost. We're still in our sins. If People aren't raised from the dead, but Jesus was. You see, it is so crucial that that belief be in our heart. That means you can say whatever you want. You can come near to Him with your lips, but your heart can be from Him. Far from Him. Happens all the time, right? We talk a big game, but do, we, do our actions and our lives match the words that we are speaking? More often than not, they do not. Why? Because it's not in us. We know the right things to say. But we don't always act upon the things that we should. It's like the Golden Corral example. You know one piece of cake is really all you need. And I use that word need very loosely there. But there's a lot of different cakes. It's not right if you don't try them all. It was like last year with tropical snow. We brought in all that ice cream. It was my responsibility to the community to taste it all. To make sure that it meets the standard that you guys deserve. And I willfully dove on that grenade. For you. Jim, help me. (laughs) I mean, think about it though. We justify our actions because we're like, oh, well, you know, this is what it means. This is what it is. You know, like, oh, God will heal if it's His will. Oh, you didn't get healed when I prayed for you. Oh, well, you just didn't have enough faith or you have sin in your life or, or whatever. No, the last time I checked, it's God's Word. We just believe it. We act upon the beliefs. Let me give you an example of this, okay? And I am guilty of this probably more than anybody else. As you guys know, I love apologetics. When I have somebody tell me that God is not real, a figment of your imagination, my immediate response every time, is really? Why do you say that? Okay? Every single time. I engage in the conversation with them. I don't care who it is. I don't care if I'm standing in line at the grocery store and it gets brought up and you look at me cross-eyed, but it has happened before. I don't care where I am. I always say that every single time. Now, when somebody comes to me and says, man, I have been sick. My immediate response is, are you taking any meds for it? I'll be praying for you. So I've got part of it nailed down. But part of it, what should my response be? Let's take care of this right now. What are we waiting on? But that's not always my response. Sometimes it's my response. 
Not always. Why is that? Because apparently, it is not so ingrained in me, the truth of God's Word when it comes to healing, that I am not putting actions with the words that I speak. Is that fair? Anybody else with me? Anybody else guilty of that too? I hope so. It's going to get really awkward up here if it's not. I mean, that's just the reality. You know what I love about this church? Is y'all don't wait for altar calls to pray for sick people. Somebody walks in like, oh man, I got a headache. I watched Jim pray for somebody one day. Oh, here, I'll just take care of this now. I mean, it happens all the time. It's awesome. Because I don't know if you knew this or not, but the altar call is kind of a new thing. We didn't used to have those years and years and years ago. It's kind of a new thing. We, we've kind of made it. Our mantra is like, oh, you know, pastor, I hear somebody's sick. Will you pray for them during the altar call? Well, what if we don't do an altar call? Why don't we just go pray for them right now? Why do we got to wait? We have to make a spectacle of it. There's nothing powerful about standing up here. This is not an altar. I don't know if you knew that. God is not up here and not back there in the back row. Good news for y'all back there, right? I mean, give me a break. We just do these things. We don't even think about it. I remember I was at a church one time, and uh, they would do prayer into the main auditorium up until close to the time everybody's coming up. Well, what happens when people start walking in? They're talking, you know, whatever. And they had this sign up that says, please enter quietly and reverently. I don't know how you ever enter something reverently. But I'm sitting there thinking, like, why don't we go pray somewhere else? And just let people walk in. But we had these, this, this idea of how these things work. So it's always this idea of belief. It always comes from this idea of faith. The shield of faith. Why is this so important? I'm getting there, I promise. Verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that's a powerful statement. Why? Because the Jews believed it's us. What do we do with these weird Gentiles? How do we bring them in? Oh, we've got to put them under the law. They need to get circumcised. They need to do all this stuff. Look at Acts 15. That was the argument that was going back and forth. What do we do with this? Here he is saying, wait a minute, whoever believes on Him. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people believe in Jesus, but they haven't put their faith in Jesus. They've created a God in their own image, and they say, oh yeah, this is Him, or whatever. Here he says, when he says on, it's the same thing as putting in. I believe in Him, which means His work, His words, everything about it is true. I will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between the Jews and the everybody else. That's the Greeks. Now, why is he saying that? Because he's talking about the present state of Israel. Keep the context alive. What's happening here? That's so important. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means you and I. There's no distinction. Anybody who enters into this covenant with faith in their heart in what Jesus had done for them will be saved. It doesn't have anything to do with the confession. It has everything to do with the belief in the heart. It's not the words you say. It's that that out of the abundance of your heart come the words that you're speaking. Verse 14. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, For how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now stop. What did it just tell us? Well, how can they call on Him, Jesus, in whom they've not believed? They've already rejected them. But how can they believe in Him if they've not heard? Which requires what? Well, how shall they hear without a preacher? And who's the preacher? It's not me. It's us. Throw this calling stuff out the window. He's talking about all of us. 
The term pastor and preacher have become synonymous, but it never says that in Scripture. Yes, pastoring is a calling. And what is the calling? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To not go out and preach the gospel because I'm a pastor. It's to go out and preach the gospel because I'm a Christian. That means we're all qualified and should be doing it. How many of us did it this week? Show of hands right now, right? Okay, that's what I thought. That's a joke. I didn't expect you to do it. Thanks for playing along. She's over here just like, yeah, that's right. I'm the only one. I'm just kidding. She would never do that, ever. But she's red now, so that makes it fun. So, but here's the thing. Is how are they going to hear without a preacher? Who is they? We're still talking about the nation of Israel. That's what he's talking about here. Not just anybody, but specifically them. Verse 16. But they have not obeyed, all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You see, these two things cannot be separated. It is not hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. It is not confessing without believing. It is hearing and accepting what you hear as truth. If you hear and reject just like they had done, you're in the same boat that they are in. Do you guys see that? I want to make sure you're getting it because this is seem to think, well, if we just preach more, or we just, maybe if we just read the Bible out loud, that'll, it'll get in us. Look, those are all good things. Don't misunderstand me. But it's the hearing of the truth and accepting it as truth that matter. There are things here in life that we have all accepted as truth that we don't even argue with. So one of which is gravity. When you fall, it hurts, right? And the older you get, you don't recover as well, do you? Right? It's just, just the way it goes, you know? It's, it's, it's the two things here are, are inseparable. But yet, when it comes to the Word of God, He said it. And He's proven His Word true through fulfillment of prophecy, but the most important thing was He rose Jesus from the dead. That is a historical fact. And yet, we don't believe parts of what He says. We, we say we do. But when it comes right down to it, our actions do not match our words. So when Paul begins this whole thing with spiritual armor, it's the belt of truth. Why? Because the Word of God, as we saw, your Word is truth, is central and foremost to everything else that we have when it comes to God. Everything. You have to accept His Word as truth. Your ability to walk in the knowledge that you are righteous in Christ hinges upon the centrality of God's Word in your life. Because you may not realize this, but when the enemy comes and tells you you're not worthy, well, here's the problem. God said that you are. What happened when the enemy came to Jesus, tempted him even with Scripture? He rejected it with Scripture. When the Word of God has a foremost position in your life, then the peace of God will begin to call the shots and it will guard your heart and it will guard your mind. When you're lacking in something, you read the Word over and over until you actually believe it and accept it as truth. No more superficial Christianity. No more hallmark verses. It is accepting what it says as true. This is no different than if God Himself stood before you and recited what it says to you. 
Because if Jesus appears to you in the night, He comes into your room and started quoting Scripture to you, you would have no doubt. But He told me. He said this to me specifically. Guess what? He said it to you specifically. He's laid this out for us. Your ability to walk in strong faith is also determined by the presence or absence of God's Word in your life. And I don't mean what you think you know. I mean digging into it. In Romans 10:17, it is faith as a result of the impartation of God's Word in your heart. The practical outworking of our salvation is greatly affecting, affected by the renewing of our mind. Because you can be born again and at peace with God, but you'll miss out on all His benefits until you permit the power of God's Word to transform your mind. Like, when we walk into a scenario, we just know how God responds because He said it. You remember the example I gave you a few weeks ago of the underoos? You guys remember? I mean, we don't often talk about underwear here, but that's what we did. But it was like something when a kid put on that Superman outfit. And they're jumping off the back of the couch. There's no doubt in their mind they're going to fly. Now they're wrong, but there's no doubt. They have this ability to just simply accept stuff. You guys remember how I, I, I talked about when we're talking about sharing the gospel from now and say it's time to walk the dog? We're talking about Jim and how he made it a point that there's this guy that went out and walked his dog every time. And he told Alma, said, anytime you see him, it's time to walk the dog. He was going to go and specifically take time to share the gospel. Well, you know the other side of that is? We need to be more like Ethan. Why are you so surprised? Oh, yeah, Neil. Neil was supernaturally healed. Yeah? And? He wasn't surprised. In fact, this whole thing was glorious for him. He's never eaten so many Krispy Kremes in all his life. <laughs> Hallelujah, right, Ethan? Yeah, he's back there nodding. He's looking at Paul. Paul was the uh, supplier. <laughs> he's, he's texting Paul. He's like, you got the goods? He's like, I'm on my way. So let's look at the shield of faith. You guys get this? You see how centrality uh, is, is, is right around this, this shield. It's so important understanding what faith is, but what it's not. It's not simply a belief. It is your belief in the reality of what God has said. So the shield of faith, let's look at verse 16. It says, above all, taking the shield of faith, which was you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, here's the thing. Roman soldiers had two kinds of shields. They had one for parades, and they had one for battle. Now, the first one I'm going to show you is the one, is, is this. See it? Little circle. Kind of cute, right? They'd be different colors, maybe different imagery on it. It's from the Greek word aspis, A-S-P-I-S. It's this small, kind of round shield. It was decorative. It, it really served no purpose. It's like, have you ever been in someone's house and they've got like a, a, a rifle up above the, the fireplace, but it doesn't actually shoot? Or they've got the samurai sword or something like that. But, I mean, you could not hack a tree limb with that. You couldn't do nothing with it. It would leave a bruise, not a cut. That is what this shield was. It was a decorative piece. It had all these etchings on it and all these engravings on the front. The front middle of it would have this artist rendition. Often it would talk about, like, victorious campaigns. They would carve into them. I mean, ornately, not if I were doing it. So, but despite how cool it looked, and it looked cool, it was useless. It had served no purpose. But the second kind of shield that a Roman soldier would use is the one that Paul is referring to here. 
It's the Greek word thuros, T-H-U-R-E-O-S. T-H-U-R-E-O-S. This thing was as wide as a door. You can kind of see it here if you look at it. That is an actual one. It's newer than the time of Paul, but it's just kind of what it looked like. It's missing the centerpiece. There's a whole lot of stuff going on it. But the shield is very wide. It was very long, which is the exact opposite of the other one because basically you're holding a trash can lid, which will protect you from snowballs, but that's about it. This shield would completely individual that it was in front of there's kind of a spiritual analogy there is what kind of faith do you have do you have one that looks good or do you have one that actually functions in the real world when you need it and you know when you find out when you're in battle it'd be nice to know ahead of time wouldn't it because you carry that small shield into a battle you're done for so look at romans 12 3 it says this for i say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, we often misunderstand this, and I'm not going to dive into this, but when we talk about, well, God has only given me faith for this or given me faith for that. No, no, no. Remember, God has given you everything that you need. But the measure of faith that you have is always more than enough to overcome anything that the enemy can throw at you. So we've got to go back to what this shield is. This shield, if you look at it again, I think I got another, there you go. What you can't tell is it was composed of multiple layers, usually six, sometimes more. It was thick animal hide, wrapped around metal, thick animal hide. It would be tightly woven together, and they would be specially tanned and put together so tight that it was as strong as steel. Very, very strong. They were incredibly strong. They would last a very long time, even multiple battles. As long, there was a key part here. You had to maintain them. There was a whole process. Because what happens to leather over time? It becomes brittle. It would become weak if it wasn't maintained. So every day, they would have a regimen of things that they would have to do to their shield. The number one thing is they'd have to rub oil into it every single day. Every single day, they'd take oil, they'd rub into it. They would soak these cloths in this extremely thick oil, and they would rub into it every single day. Now, when it comes to the things of God, oil always represents what? The Holy Spirit, Spirit of God. There's something about having that relationship with the Spirit of God every day. But there's another thing that they would often do before they went into battle. They didn't do this every day, but they did it when the battle was coming, or even on a short moment's notice. They were always uh, doing this to a degree. Is once it was rubbed with oil, one of the things that they would do is they would soak the shield in water and let it sit there and absorb this water. Why is that? Well, look what verse 16 says. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Because what would happen is this leather would absorb that water, and when the arrow would hit, it would extinguish it immediately. Now imagine the shield is big, it's heavy, it's got tons of leather wrapped around it, soaked in water. Does that sound like it'd be pretty, pretty heavy? Can you imagine holding that thing up and flinging a sword with another one? No, you can't imagine it because we spend too much time at Golden Corral. We couldn't do it. But remember, there's the clip that, that, that it locked in on that belt. So if you had a muffin top, it got interesting. Okay? I'm preaching to myself here. But what about these fiery darts? What are they? 
See, it's not what you think. We always think of, of you know, you see it on the, the old movies and the Renaissance stuff, and they light the thing on fire, and they're shooting it over the castle wall and all this other stuff. So the Greek word used here is very specific, and it's a historical word. It's, you see it in the writings of a guy. I must try to say his name. I always butcher it. Thucydides. I always butcher it. I'm not 100% sure how you say that. He was an ancient writer. He was an Athenian historian. He wrote about the Peloponnesian Wars and stuff like that. But it was um, this where we get the word pyro, pyrotechnic, pyro, pyru is actually the Greek word used here. It was talk about these especially terrible arrows that were equipped with fire. But in military terms, there were three types. You had the regular arrows, similar to what we would shoot today. And then you got the arrows that were dipped in tar and they would be lit on fire like you see in the movies that they're shooting it over and all of that. But the one that's talked about here was very unique. Because what would happen is this arrow would contain combustible fluids that once it impacted, it would burst into flames. And Paul's word usage here is very similar to what Thucydides used in the using that he's saying that this is the third type. Now, this was the scariest arrow of them all. Now, why do you think that is? Well, if you know that there are three types, one's just a plain old arrow. Now, you got flaming arrows that coming at you. You're, you're less afraid of the plain old arrows, right? Right, okay. Maybe it's just me. Because the one that they lit on fire, you can see that coming, especially at night. You see it coming, you can kind of take, you know, get ready for it. But this one looked exactly like any other arrow when it was coming in. And when did you find out that you were wrong upon impact? Once it hit you, it was too late. Now, these weren't used in everyday combat. They were specifically used in cases of which they were fortified. They were locked in. They would shoot these over the walls because they couldn't break the encampment. So they would shoot one after another until finally they would break through. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. He's laying this out. It's, it looks like anything else. Oh man, I can handle that. But you had to be prepared. If you did not soak your shield that day, you got a problem. If you had not been keeping up with the daily regimen of rubbing the oil into the shield, you got a problem. Every day we put on this armor, you got a problem. But he says in verse 16, he says, above all, taking the shield of faith. Now most people will interpret this and say, you see, above all, the most important thing is that shield. Everything else that matters, but above everything else, make sure you have the shield. That is not what that means. We often misunderstand this. It comes from two Greek words, epipassin. It's a compounded word. Epi means over and passive means all or everything. It's not, it's rather than referring to its importance as far as this is the most important one, it's describing its function. It's not saying that, you know, this above everything else, if you had a choice, it is describing the shield that covers up above everything else, putting it in front of everything else. So, let's go back to Jesus, Matthew 4. He's faced with three temptations. Going back to the nation of Israel where they had missed these, these same temptations because he quotes those Old Testament scriptures. What happened? He could have turned the stones to bread or it's not a temptation. He could have let himself be highly exalted. He could have thrown himself off the building. The enemy came through with three different ideas. None of which were obedient to God. One of which he specifically used two passages out of Psalm. He quoted scripture. Jesus' faith, so to speak, being in front of him, recognized it and extinguished it with what? The Word of God. He did not allow that 
to take place because his shield, so to speak, was in front of him, extinguishing it, not letting it get through. It means to be out in front, covering all. And then you got the next word, above all, taking the shield of faith. The Greek word, Anna Lambano. As you guys know, I'm a Greek scholar, okay? But Anna means up or back or again. Lambano means to take up or to take in hand. It's to take something in your hand, to pick something back up again. It's saying to pick up your shield, which implies what? You can put it down. They tell boxers, don't let your hands down. Even when you're tired, keep your hands up. Because if nothing, even if you can't swing, you can still defend yourself. No soldier ever goes out to battle without a shield. It wasn't optional. It wasn't like, oh, I'll take this part. I don't need that shield today. I'll catch the arrows. Yet we as believers do everything we can to walk in the enemy's camp without as, with as little as, or armor as possible. We just kind of go through life. We're like, I just get by. Man, I read my Bible yesterday. I read it last week. It's just a little bit of dust on there. I remember from when I was a kid, it said something to this effect. Every day. There's a reason that we come together every week as an outlier of everything we do individually at home every day. We come together to be equipped and to go out. The coming in and the going out was the practice in the Old Testament. The coming in to be equipped and the going out is being sent. 1 Timothy verse eight, or chapter 1, verse 18 says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that, thou might, uh, that by them might war a good warfare holding faith and a good consciousness, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. What's it say? Holding faith. In other words, don't let what's coming at you dictate the truth of what God has said. Your circumstance may not be grounded in reality. The arrows may be flying, but don't put your shield down because the time to attack is coming. You guys seeing this? You guys see how this, there's so much more here than we allow. We often just read over this. But what happens when someone puts away their faith, their shield of faith? It leads them to shipwreck. It leads them to shipwreck. Have you ever seen somebody that walks away from the church? Don't misunderstand me. I'm saying you've got to be here every Sunday. I'm saying you should be here every Sunday. But you see somebody that walks away from the church for a certain amount of time, they get isolated out on an island. There's a reason that, that Jesus refers to people as sheep. They get out there on their own. They get a, a hold of their own ideas and their own, because there's no accountability. Their own thoughts. They become enemies in their own mind and talk themselves out of the truth of what God has said. But there's one more part that I want you guys to see here. It's the purpose of the shield. It says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, this one often gets overlooked. We miss this all the time. There is something that's extremely interesting when you look at the Greek usage here what the you will be able. So it's talking about you. We know the shield of faith is up there, but this will be able. Comes from the Greek word dunamis. And this is where it gets interesting. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The word dunamis in the Greek means explosive power or dynamic power. You often hear the dynamite is where we get that word. But there's something about that that's so powerful. This shield is, is dunamis, the same as if the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You see, it's the Holy Spirit coming upon you is the reason we can carry out the Word of God throughout the world. 
Not fearing whatever's coming because His grace is sufficient for us in all things. It doesn't matter what we think or what we're going to or what we're facing. We know that God is bigger than all of that. Our job is to simply be obedient. It's this dynamic power that we have through the Holy Spirit. When you hold your shield of faith in front of you, and that shield is anointed by the Holy Spirit and is saturated with the Word of God, your faith positions you to move in God's dynamic battle. This is, this is the thing, guys. It's His power. His power. Not yours. His. Where is the battlefield? As I have told you, it is always in your mind. He attacks our minds. He attacks our emotions. You're going to die of cancer. Your marriage is going to fail. You're going to go bankrupt. You can't do that. There's a pandemic. It's going to get you. The economy's crashing. What are you going to do? These are arrows that get shot time and time again. Do you realize when somebody was fortified and they're shooting over the wall, you know what they can't see? The wall. They can't see what's over there. There's something in between them, but they keep shooting, and they keep shooting, and they keep shooting. Those attacks are going to come, but these arrows the enemy shoots at us are only extinguished through our faith in God's promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, here's the thing. We read this again. It's in one of those favorite verses, but what does it say? Our weapons are not anything that we can touch, feel, smell, any of that kind of stuff. But our weapons are mighty in God. For what purpose? What is coming against this? Now, break down this sentence structure for you English majors. Everything here is coming against the knowledge of God. So, our weapons are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds that are against the knowledge of God. They're casting down arguments that are against the knowledge of God. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. What is the knowledge of God? What He said is true. What we do with it is the moving part. You see, all of these things, what, what was the devil tempting Jesus with? Things that went against what God had said. Same with Eve. Went against what God had said. When he comes to you and says these things are coming against you, you're going to fail, whatever. You are worthless he is getting you off kilter because we take every thought into captivity to do what? Be obedient to Christ. In other words, every thought. When it says captivity, it means captivity. When you went into captivity during this time, it was not good. Now if you go into captivity, i.e. go to jail, what happens? You get three meals a day. I don't know if they're any good, but they might be. You stay alive. Cable TV, air conditioner. I mean, it's, life is all right there. But during this time, when you took something captive, you either killed it, you enslaved it, or you made its life completely miserable. It was sitting down in the cesspool when something was taken captive. That is where the thoughts of the enemies belong because we are bringing every thought into the obedience of Christ. Every thought. What does that mean? That we must stay up and alert. We're ready for battles at all times. We do this individually, but we also do this corporately because these soldiers would walk very closely as they were marching down. And when these arrows would begin to fly, they would go into a motion where they would take those shields together. It's called the tortoise formation. And they would raise it up in the air. And they could not hit. There was no gaps in between them. These aren't cute words that Paul's using. He's making a point. You and I are strong together. Stronger together. 
doing life together. Because what happens? Sometimes you've got your shield up and your arm starts to get a little tired and you need somebody to pick that up for you. Somebody's watching your back at all times. See, this is the, por- uh, the purpose of coming together. Gathering together is equipping ourselves for the work of the ministry to go out. We were never meant to be isolated. You guys, God has given us everything that we need. But one more point here, and we'll get more into this next week because we're going to talk about the sword of the Spirit. You need to be here next week. Cancel whatever you have. But I taught on this about four or five years ago now. And the Lord showed me something when I was getting ready for that. It took me eight weeks to get to that point, And that was the whole point of the series. And it was driving me nuts. But it opened my eyes to something I'd never noticed before. And I'm going to share that next week. And why am I not telling you now? So you'll come back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. So some of y'all are way too young for that in the back. I didn't even think about that. Um, but anyway, is that when we come together, we come together with purpose. We're strong individually, but corporately together, we're unstoppable. We have to understand where the Word of God plays a part in all of this. But here's the thing. Those soldiers were always on the offensive, moving forward. That no matter, remember what I talked about, if something fell in the road as they were marching forward, it was dead. They marched right over it. They didn't get out of formation. They didn't get out of rank. They just kept moving. What happens to the church? Anything scary happens, we shut our doors. We hide. We cower. We are no longer bold. Why? Because we don't believe the word for what it says. We have succumbed to the mandates of the world. But we are to rise above that. We are to allow, listen, the arrows are going to fly. It's whether they're going to hit you that matters. We, it's time for the church to get back to the word of God. If you do not accept this as truth, if you, this is nothing more than something you've confessed, something you use, you, you sprinkle a little bit over here, you sprinkle a little bit over there, it won't do anything for you. This is reality. It's, if you get to the same position where you accept God's Word as you do gravity, your life will be forever changed. It doesn't matter what church a person attends. It matters what they do with this. This is where it's at. There's a reason that God has said the things that He said. It is time for the church to rise up and take its place. To be bold and to be brave and to be above all reproach. And yet we don't. You see, that shield of faith can extinguish. It didn't say some. It says all. Those arrows will hit and they'll be immediately extinguished. And you'll walk through and there'll be people that are like, man, how did you do it? And you're like, what do you think was going to happen? Right, Ethan? Right. And then there'll be Krispy Kremes at the end. It'll be wonderful. 